Chuck <laughs> said he couldn't show up like 20 minutes ago. He doesn't have a choice anymore. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Are you looking for a system that makes it easy to track all of your expenses, income, and your budget? Is QuickBooks too much of a pain for you? It was for me, and I switched to Less Accounting, and I love it. It makes things really easy to keep track of and gives me a lot of charts and graphs that make it easy for me to look at and just know where I'm at with my expenses and everything else. One of the owners, Alan Branch, and his son have written a book for entrepreneurs' children that talks about what entrepreneurs do and why they're important. So if you're interested in that, then go to lessaccounting.com slash hero. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 125 of The Freelancer Show. This week, we have Curtis McHale. G'day. And our guest this week is Brian Cardarella. Hello. Brian, uh, this is your first time on the show. Uh, please tell us a bit about yourself. So I am the CEO of Dockyard, a consultancy in Boston. We've been around for about a little over two and a half years now. I guess we'll get into this more throughout the show, but it you know, started as uh, me just freelancing and then eventually bringing on more and more people, and we eventually became, I guess, now you call us an agency. Uh, we do full stack, so we got designers, we have project management, we have engineers, and um, things are going pretty good for us right now. Well, if nothing else, you have a spectacular view out of your window there that we see on the Hangout. Oh, it's actually a graveyard. <laughs> it is, uh, it's the, uh, <laughs> the old graveyard in downtown Boston, so the obelisk that you see in the middle, that's actually Benjamin uh, Franklin's parents. And Sam Adams is buried in there as well. Hence all the people walking around. With Benjamin Franklin's parents? Yeah, yeah. So a big triangle, you, can, it, you can't see it on, resolution's probably too small, but it says Franklin on it, and, it's, uh, and Franklin's parents are buried there. All right, that's pretty great. Random so, facts. No, At one point, we, just, uh, we were thinking about toying with the idea of renaming the company Graveyard, but I don't think that was a good marketing decision. <laughs> right across. Where products go to die, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so what's your background, and how did you get to the freelancer stage? And then we can talk a little bit more about how you got to the building up an agency stage. Right. So I went to school for computer science. I went to Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island. I did not graduate, but I finished my major in computer science. I, long story short, Providence College is a very religious school, and I had finished all my required classes for a major, and it was stuck with a bunch of free electives that I had to fill up with religious classes, and I was not a big fan of that. So I had an opportunity to, to kind of bounce out and do something else. I did that for a while, and I actually spun away from software. I, uh, I actually landed eventually working for my father as a, a recruiter for electrical engineers of all things. But uh, dur- actually, let me back up for a second. During college, I was doing um, I was interning at American Power Conversion, doing uh, like assembler and uh, low-level C programming for a lot of their smart cards that would plug into their batteries. And this is around the time that the bubble burst. Like the company was still making money, but their stock price was cut in a quarter almost overnight. And so they they started locking things up. And one of the things that they locked up more or less was me as the intern. So I went from having like no chair to I guess having an early version of a standing desk. Only it was very uncomfortable because my monitor was like two feet above my head. They couldn't buy a pencil. It was, it was very. Uh, I was thinking to myself, is this really the industry I want to get into? Is this the the type of thing I want to be doing? It didn't 
that didn't feel like it. So I was kind of spinning. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was working for my father. After about two years of working there, his company at the time was around 20 years old. Now it's closer to 30. They had a 20-year-old database of just information on uh, companies, on contacts and such, but it was behind some like really bad digital basic front end. The database file was still there. The application they're using to access the data was not fantastic. So he tasked me with finding a way to extract the data and provide a new UI to it. I had probably been away from web development in general and just software development for around two years. And at this time was around when extreme programming, agile development was starting to take off and Ruby and Rails was just introduced. So I started really diving into Rails, really liking a lot of things that were in there. In fact, when I had left software development, I was very, uh, I'd say almost, you know, retentive about my code. I didn't know about test-driven development at the time, but I was doing something similar to it in that I was kind of writing out the assertions I would expect beforehand. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have an executable document, or no, like executable test suite, but I would, you know, have, here's my expectations beforehand, and I would write the code to satisfy those in my, in, you know, on paper or in my head. And so when I came back to software, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is like exactly what I want to be doing. This is so much better than when I left it. So I really got heavy into Ruby, into Ruby and Rails. So from there, I got a, I guess, a junior developer position at a big Japanese company here in Boston. And then from there, I moved over to a startup, Zendesk, when they were in Boston for less than six months, maybe four months they were here. And then they very quickly got their Series A, I think, uh, to move to California. And I, I was I had no interest in going to San Francisco. I, I dabbled with it for a little bit in my head because I knew they were a really cool company. I liked them, but ultimately I didn't want to go. And I actually ended up down in Washington, D.C. I'm very interested in politics and political tech. And so I went to work at the Democratic National Committee for a year doing uh, Rails work. And then after that experience, I realized I didn't want to work for anyone else ever again. The DNC is an interesting place to work. I would suggest everyone that has any interest in politics go and work for either side, but I don't think it's a place to really spend too much time. So I, I came out of uh, the DNC. I actually worked for RailsDog as a contractor. RailsDog is a consultancy out of Maryland, and I worked there for about two months as I was transitioning up to Boston or back to Boston. And I just started leveraging my network, looking for connections. I, I had a good network in Boston already. I'd been living there before I went down to DC. Came back up and started working my network for finding small contracts. Eventually got to the point where the size of the contract necessitated additional resources like design. It, I think is usually when you're when you're freelancing is probably as an engineer is probably the first outside your immediate skill set that you're probably going to look to fill or at least partner up with someone. Um, I knew a designer who was freelancing as well, and, uh, and then I didn't really have a lot of client side application experience. I could hack together some JavaScript, but Backbone was becoming more popular, and I just didn't have the time to go through and really learn it, so I partnered up with a, a Rails developer, but had, had a lot of experience in Backbone. And from there, we decided to form Dockyard out of that. That was probably end of 2011, beginning of 2012, when that happened. So what was your biggest challenge when you moved from just you and your partner to more people? Well, there was two partners, so uh, rather three. I think the most 
difficult thing about your first hire is now you have to actually ensure their salary. You have to ensure their benefits. Up until that point, amongst the partners, you know, there's always that understanding that if the money isn't coming in, then okay, then there's no pot to split up amongst ourselves. Uh, you may forego benefits and have everyone, all the partners figure that out individually, which we, we were doing at first. And taxes as well. We were essentially just paying all of our, all the partners as freelancers working amongst ourselves. And so everyone kind of handled their own taxes. But when we go out and hire someone as a first employee, we kind of, for lack of better, I'll try not to swear, but <laughs> we got to get our stuff together uh, on the, uh, <laughs> so I mean, we definitely had some screw ups around there. I mean, I, I think, you know, I talk about the history of Dockyard. I like to talk about our failures as much, if not more, than our successes. The reason for that is uh, when I was starting Dockyard, I went out and looked for guidance. I went out and looked for other people sharing information on how to start a consultancy, uh, and there was nothing out there. What I came to realize is that a lot of consultancies like putting out this image of success, no matter what. They don't like sharing their failures because to potential clients, any failures may mean a missed lead. Like a client's not going to want to, the perception at least, is that a client may not want to work with somebody that had a bad project or someone that had a particular screw up at some point. Which is, of course, a total success lie, Success is right? fleeting. Like success, you can't right. Yeah, it, it's every consultancy is you know, has its problems. Every consultancy has its issues. Every consultancy has had failures. We've, we've lost projects. We've had clients get really upset with us. Uh, we have done our best to adjust as that goes on, um, and we've learned from that, but we will, con- I guarantee you, at some point in the future, we will have another client that's going to fire us because we have a miscommunication. We screw up or they screw up. Yeah. Like something I goes actually wrong. just had a client ask me um, that, and I was telling them but, the most important thing is not that it happened, but what are the processes you have in place now to make sure it doesn't happen again, right? Because they said, oh, this other right. person said they'd never had a bad right. client. I was like, they're just lying to you. That's all they're doing. All the big consultancies I've seen really try to put forth that image of excellence. And it's actually really frustrating because it's BS. It is total BS. So to go back, I mean, I, I, so the reason why I like stories of failure more than stories of success is because it's really difficult to recreate success. Success usually is, you know, one part persistence and a lot of luck. Like you can create more opportunities for luck for yourself by just being very, very persistent and keeping at something. And eventually you'll get lucky. But failures are very recreatable. If we do something screwed up, it's most likely the exact same problem that someone else had. I just didn't know about, you know, this particular situation or how to, what the, uh, what the proper way to handle that outcome would be. And we would learn from that after the fact. So from my blog posts, I like to share our failures quite a bit because I, I feel like those are the things that ultimately people are, are interested in because they're going to be the ones that are going to – those are the things you learn from. Like you're not going to learn from like, oh, we got a big contract because it just landed in our lap. That's not really really relevant to anybody. But to go back to the original question, sorry, I went off on that standard for a second. The the first hire w- was difficult, and it's still – second hire is more like less difficult, third hire is – less difficult, it becomes less difficult over time because we have more padding at that point. We have more people working that can absorb that cost. But anytime you make a first hire, I'd be very surprised that any group of people or any consultancy is coming out or agency is going to be able to immediately put that person on contract work. What I've come to realize is that you have 
a contract, a potential contract that comes in. They ask you if you have the staff can, that can meet it. If you don't, you should not go out and just hire anybody to, to go staff it. There's some people who are fine with subcontracting. I'm not a big fan of subcontracting. I like to take ownership of what we're doing. So what we try to do is we try to find the smartest people we can and hire them when we can, and we absorb that financial cost and we'll eventually even out for us when we can actually put like, them on something. I'd like to ask you a little We've bit about subcontracting because a bunch of sorry, a decent portion of my work actually comes from subcontracting from agencies for a specific portion of their project that I am quite good at and they don't have expertise yeah. in. Do you do it? Do you, would you subcontract in that scenario or no? And why? I think the only situation we would be looking to subcontract right now is if we are doing something very heavy on data visualization or analytics. That that is an area that. I'd say that we are mediocre and we don't have specialty in doing something with R or something with, you know, JavaScript data visualization. Uh, our designers are good at, you know, coming up with visualizations, but we don't have a lot of implementation experience on that. But that being said, the reason why I'm less interested in subcontracting is because we put a lot of emphasis on trying to nail our estimates and really stick to our estimates as, as strong, as hard as we can. What I have found is that with subcontractors, we lose ownership of the estimate at that point, right? So we can't uh, reliably give an estimate back to our client if we don't have complete ownership of the process. That could come down to you know a failing of our process and just how we have organized things that have put us in a position to to be stuck in that way. But that is where we've landed and the reason why I've I've shied away from subcontractors. I'm sort of curious just to sort of step back a little in your in your story. So you were freelancing for a bit and you sort of joined up with other people and now you're building an agency. I'm curious to know why. Like what drove you? Was it the prospect of earning more money? Was it the prospect of working on bigger projects, being taken more seriously? Yep. More money definitely was not it because I have earned far less money over the past three years than I ever did freelancing. I mean, eventually, if we become successful enough, I'll probably earn more money. But I've taken significant financial losses over the past couple of years in order to keep the company going. Not to say that we've been completely dead in the water. We've been profitable every single year. I think we've come close to 17% profit, but that is usually like averaged around 17% profit each year. But that has only been because I have probably paid myself 25% of each year. I have taken myself off of billable work just because I found that I think some people are very, very good at balancing business side of things and then being able to like do the mental switch over to software development. I don't have that ability. I need to stay focused on one or the other, or I'm just ineffective at both. And right now, the most important thing for me to be doing is focusing on the business side of things. I will step in and help out some of our developers from time to time, mentor them, pair up with them, that sort of thing. But as far as scheduling me out on a project, it has not proven to be very successful. So one of the early things we struggled with was people you know, around Boston knew my name, and when they came to us, they wanted Brian Cartarella on our project. Uh, it took us about a year, year and a half to kind of move beyond that, where people were interested in Dockyard being on the project rather than Brian Cartarella being on the project. I don't scale very well. I can only be on one project at a time, and I really don't want to be on any projects just because I need... there's more important things at Dockyard for me to be focusing on. So what was the, the reason then, uh, if, it, if it wasn't money, to then ramp up and, and have more hires and more people? I think job security. It, I mean, it's a weird thing to say job security in the consulting role because maybe, depending on how you look at it, we may be putting ourselves in a less secure position. But I see a lot of freelancers that are 
it's not a regular job, right? It's it's like a they they build up a cash flow for a bit and then they go on vacation for a while. And for some people, that's fine. That's the lifestyle they want to live. That's not like my style. I need to be consistently doing something. And I also like the idea of building something as well, building a company around that. That's a particular interest of mine. I kind of come from my family as a lot of, I don't know if entrepreneurs are right, where, where my father owned his own company, my grandfather owned his own company. So I think it's just kind of ingrained within me to do that. So one of the challenges, I guess, that freelancers have is, of course, bringing in enough work to pay the bills. Right. But my experience, I, I had at the peak of times, uh, I'm in, I mean, it's now me and I have an employee who works for me as well. But back in 2000, just before the dot-com bust, I had about six people working for me. And my biggest challenge was just bringing in enough volume of work all the time to pay all those people. And so what do you do to ensure that uh, you have enough of a, uh, not flow coming in. Well, I think as you grow, keeping that under like a handle on that is difficult. So having the insight into your company on exactly who's billable, uh, who's being billed out any given week is very important. We built out a tool. We used 10,000 feet. Our project manager uses 10,000 feet to actually schedule people, and we extract that data out into another application that actually pulls in our invoicing data and pulls in money that's going into our bank. I mean, this isn't like a product that we put out just for our own internal purposes, but it'll actually like show us like how we're performing week to week on billable amounts. And it does uh, a little bit of projection heading out as well, uh, knowing where where our contracts currently are. But as far as, as I think more what you're getting at is lead generation side of things. We started out as a Rails consultancy. That's where my, my knowledge really was. And I knew people in the Rails world, so I would hire good ones. What my fear was at the time and what, I'm definitely seeing starting to happen now is that Rails, I mean, from a developer's point of view, Rails is actually kind of boring to me. Um, I think it's it's super effective at what it does, but it's not a um, innovating technology anymore. And when that happens to any technology is when it becomes the most popular. And so from a contracting point of view, we're dealing with more competition amongst potential other consultants or other freelancers to go after given contracts. So it makes little sense for us to stay as a Rails consultancy because we're going to be dealing with more competition and we're going to have less leverage when it actually comes to negotiating contracts and rates. What thankfully has happened past year and a half is that client-side frameworks have really taken off. And whereas earlier I said I didn't really get much in the backbone, I've become very heavily involved with Ember. I found it to be a very interesting technology early on and decided that Dockyard was going to be investing a lot of time and effort into Ember and through that hopefully be able to establish itself as some sort of presence within the the Ember community or Ember world, however you want to call it. Uh, What we found is that when we are specializing in a very niche technology that doesn't have much competition, when those that are looking to work in that technology come to us, we are in a very good negotiating position. So whereas there are probably less contracts out there for Ember right now than there are for Angular, but there's also way less competition for those contracts. I, so I agree 100%. I, I've been thinking of getting into Ember. I've been starting to dip my toes into that water, and I've seen exactly the same sort of thing as you, that there are probably 100 times as many people talking about Angular but the people who want Ember really, really, really want it, and there's basically yeah. no one out there, or very few people out there doing it. Well, the other side of it, too, is I, I also decided, maybe not early on, but at some point after Docker started, is that we 
are shying away from startups as clients. We take them on from time to time, but only after we've decided that they... Well, I actually, let me, I have three qualifications for whether or not we take on a client. Number one is, can they afford us? This is something that a lot of contractors, a lot of freelancers, I see the money question, they shy away from. I think it's stupid for them to do so. There's no point whatsoever for you to enter into a contract or any type of negotiation if you have any concern about the client being able to pay you or pay your rate. Um, so can they pay us? Is their budget in line with what our, co what our costs will be uh, is the first concern. Number two, is it an interesting project? I think that our employees stay here for two reasons. We tend to pay them you know, pretty well given the market rate. Uh, we have pretty good benefits, but we're also working on interesting projects with interesting technology. If either of those two things go out the window, I think that uh, we start to lose employees. Uh, we don't have, you know, we're not going to go public. We don't have any long-term vision for making IPOing or anything like that or becoming acquired. So there's no real reason. People aren't enjoying working at Dockyard. There's no real reason to keep them here. And consultancies, I'm sure you guys know, are, you know, poaching ground for startups. We get a lot of our developers get contacted by recruiters quite a bit. Uh, because consultancies are generally pretty good at bringing in, you know, smart junior people, training them up. They become polyglot in some way, or at least, you know, know a lot of full stack. And we've been fortunate that we have not lost many people. In fact, we've only had one person quit, and that was only because he was living in Washington, D.C., and he really didn't like working remote. And how many people do you have working for you now? As of next Monday, we'll have 19, including myself. Wow, that's pretty great. So I, I'd like to get up to 22 by the end of the year. That will probably be more on the design side than on engineering side, but that's that's our growth goal for the end of the year. In terms of you were mentioning you know, Rails and Ember, and I, I again I totally agree with what you said in terms of if you specialize in a niche technology or in a technology that not many other people know, then you become uh, uh, like a premium brand for working with that, and people are going to come to you. Mm -hmm. But I found that I have a number of clients who could not care in the slightest. What technology right. I use? You know, some totally. some of them say, "Oh, I want to come to you because using Ruby or whatever," and yep. some of them come to me and say, "I just want a solution." So to 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 that point, I find that the clients that are not tech savvy, that don't like, they just want a great application, right? But they want very good design. So what we decided early on, where where I was noticing that we were having less success on really during the contract negotiation for Rails, because Boston has so many consultancies. We had several conversations where uh, clients would play us against each other and say, oh, we got uh, quoted this rate from consultancy A and quoted this rate from consultancy B. Can you guys do better? And I, I just was not interested in having those type, of, those type of conversations because it's a losing battle every single time. The only leverage we have is reducing our rate and putting ourselves out of business or just scraping by. So we have to come up with a differentiator whether that was on the technology side with Ember, but as you said, a lot of clients may not even care what technology there is. So the other differentiator we have beyond cost is the actual design. And that's something that is very you know, tangible to a lot of clients. They come and they see a design, they go, okay, this is something that I can grab a hold of. This is something that I want. Uh, we were fortunate enough, one of our early contracts, we were introduced to a uh, local designer, Steve Trevathan, and we worked with him on a bunch of other projects. He had his own consultancy, Dubot. And then maybe about a year and a half into it, actually last summer, probably right around this time last year, we needed a creative director. We needed someone to lead our design. 
and him and his partner were actually looking for a lead engineer. They're working out of her office. I just took him out to lunch. I go, this is stupid. I mean, we're looking for each other. Let's just partner up. And he agreed. And so it just worked out that way. We were fortunate in that. And so we brought him in, him in and he has, he's been building up the design side of Dockyard. And that's been huge for us. It's an excellent marketing tool. Its design is, I've said many times that, and this probably isn't something as a consultant I should say, but not to say that we do this, but you can have the best tech under the hood and it can look like junk and nobody, like people won't want to use it. You can have the opposite though. You can have it look amazing and have PHP spaghetti code under the hood, but the, the users won't care. The users don't care what the tech is under the hood. I mean, the tech at that point, you can make arguments saying, okay, response time and, you know, the ability to quickly build on new features and go down that road. But generally, like, people want something that looks nice, that feels nice, has a good user experience, and the design really dictates that. And not only that, but... Absolutely. I mean, I just, uh, like, uh, I think I learned that probably very early on my consulting career, so probably, like, 96 or 97, and I went somewhere to talk to people about doing, uh, well, it was basically, uh, I guess, a very early social network type of site. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to use this uh, framework that was known as OpenACS, a company that was known as Ars Digita, actually from not too far from where you are. And it was so incredibly powerful and came with just about everything you wanted out of the box and was black text on a white background. <laughs> and I showed it to people, and they were like, you got to be kidding me. Why would we want to use this? And I said, no, no, but just imagine what would happen if we were to design it. And I realized I hit a brick wall there. And so they went with the PHP spaghetti code, frameworks that did maybe a tenth of it, but because they saw fonts and colors and beautiful things, and that, that totally sold them on it. It was a, a very important moment, I think, for me in my career. Design sells. Design is an excellent lead generator for us. It has helped us increase the size of our contracts because a, a good designer will be... I think the difference between a good designer and a bad designer is someone who can actually extract the information out of the client, like the requirements out of the client. And that's become a big part of our process. We call it discovery, but we're probably going to change the name of it because we're doing a lot more than just discovering right now. But it's uh, our proposals and all the requirements gathering. Our design team really runs that side of it. That's when we really started taking off as a real business, I would say. But the design side, like for any given contract, I mean, these are fuzzy numbers. But I would say 25% of the contract revenue is represented by design. 75% is engineering. So the design becomes a lead generator for, for the engineering side. We gotta bring in these contracts that, you know, design kind of gets the client's hooks into, and then we convert them over to, you know, engineering contracts. That process has been, has been very good for us. And we will, we've been approached to do, uh, several design only contracts, and our designers have been wanting to do those, but I've, said no only because at that point we are leaving the engineering team kind of hanging there. We don't have anything to actually put them on. We have to make sure that whatever contracts we bring in are converting over. Yeah, to I know I've staged my portfolio so that the less, some of the things that are um, the less technically interesting and the prettier ones where we, where the client was willing to hire a good designer or something being a one man shop myself, I'm not the designer, but to go back to a point I brought in, earlier on was that if you're a freelancer individual, you should find a good designer and there's not to be exclusive partnership, but uh, work with that person. You know, you're going to find that 
You're going to have a lot of for two years, uh, and she regeneration between the two of you. I, I work with WordPress mainly or only, and she understands enough of the technical aspect that when I say no, 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 that is like astronomically, mm-hmm. you don't understand the technical aspects of it, and we'll talk about it. And she's like, okay, and we come up with a better solution together. And my clients love her too. Like I get clients, I say, talk to Vanessa, she's awesome, and they'll get off the call yep. and be like, she is awesome. I love her so much. So that's good. So we work well together, and she feed we feed projects back and forth. Wow, that's great. I'm I'm sort of curious. I mean, you mentioned this a little bit of, I guess, in terms of you know, use design as a lead, and this is this helps you to distinguish yourselves from uh, the other development shops and other agencies. Well, um, you, I, I'm actually going to put that point just real quickly. Is that sure, please. especially in the Rails and Ruby world, like every are you guys Rails developers? I, I used to. Rails? I used to do I, Rails for end work, but I so Curtis is a reformed Rails developer. Okay, so I mean, you guys know. Everybody does the exact same process. Everyone does GDD. Everyone uses the exact same tools. Everyone has like the same code guidelines in Ruby. There's absolutely nothing that distinguishes my dockyard from any other consultancy. Absolutely nothing that distinguishes us from another you know freelancer. There's no levers there whatsoever. The only distinguishing factor we can have that is in our favor is that we can produce a better design to build an application around. That was kind of the revelation that I had and why we pushed so hard on design. So is that how you avoid some of the problems of commoditization and people outsourcing to cheaper countries as well, where you basically say, look, you don't just want cheap software, you want this really good design and the holistic approach that we can provide? Yeah, uh, there's some of that. I mean, I'd say that we were hitting that probably about six months ago, eight months ago, when we were more of a, you know, more of a Rails shop. But now we've gone, like, full-blown Ember. All of our applications are Ember. And we're kind of doing very well in that space. So I I don't think we have... Because we've been specializing in that, the contracts that are coming to us are Ember-specific. We don't have anyone coming to us right now that we've been working with that have asked us for a Rails application and then tried to get us to justify the build a Rails application versus someplace, you know, overseas and, you know, compete against that rate. Now, how did you uh, that, that really hasn't been, though? Uh, you hasn't said you picked Ember, but recently. how did you, like, did you, how did you get your guys trained um, in it I, and everything else? Because that's a cost you have to take, I right? The I, uh, of your people. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I see a lot of shops and some people that will immediately... You're just like, boom, we're moving over a new technology right now, and we're going to just you know, start telling everyone we're experts in it. Like, for example, when Swift came out, the new iOS uh, language, the Objective-C bytecode compiled language, I think within a week, I was seeing Swift training courses being advertised. I mean, that's insane. Like, <laughs> there was nobody in the world that even knew that this language existed except for some team in Apple. And then within a week, people are claiming to be expert enough to actually justify charging $2,000 to people to be trained up in Swift. For me, I don't operate that way. I, I, I like to be as, I mean, go back to the previous point that we're only as good as our estimations. And so if we are uh, not able to really understand how a language or framework works, we can't estimate reliably around it, and then that just puts us in a bad position. We can say, oh, this contract's going to cost $100,000, and then we're, I don't know, 50K into it and realize we don't know what the hell we're doing, and then it ends up costing two hundred dollars or $300,000. So that's not, and then the client never pays that because it, that's ridiculous. 
So the way we transitioned over to Ember, and where I discovered it, I mean, was first off of, I guess, fanboyism. Like, Yehuda Katz is, you know, lead developer on the project, and he was uh, very involved. Or I don't know what his core team status is for Rails and jQuery, but at least at the time, he was Rails core team, and he was previously jQuery core team. He may still be. I'm just not certain of his status. And these were two core components that I, I've been using in web development. I figured if he's introducing this new framework, it, that alone was enough to pique my interest in it and look at it. I had looked at, for those that don't know, Ember is actually a fork of a framework called Sprout Core, uh, which was an attempt to, I guess, build a web version of the Cocoa framework that Apple has for OS X. And Sprout Core was, I say, a spectacular failure. Not that, I don't know if people really call it a failure, but it was almost ahead of its time. It was very, very complex, very, very, uh, very, very advanced, but it was also very, very slow. They forced you to build out widgets and that were, you know, not, anyway, I won't go too far into it. But anyway, so they, they forced Sparkcore to Sparkcore 2.0. They realized that it was divergent enough that they just broke the project off into Ember. And this is when I became interested. So, I had written a library for Rails called client-side validations, and I noticed that Ember didn't have any validations in there. I had the test suite for all the validations already, so I was going to um, write a library. And then Ember Camp, which was first unofficial Ember conference, being run by Tilda on San Francisco, but it, it wasn't the first. It was just like 150 people. I submitted a talk like, oh, I can talk about client-side validations, and they miraculously accepted my talk and I decided that okay I'm gonna implement this library in about 24 hours my talk did not go well because of that I was live coding and it kind of blew up in my face but regardless it, it I at least kind of established me as having in that space and so from there we would do side projects we would really kind of write blog posts we would release some open source software around it I would say maybe six months after we really played around with Ember before we started confidently using it in client projects. We got involved with the Boston Ember meetup. I eventually took over that uh, from the guy I was running previously. I had experience running meetups. I, I ran the Boston Ruby meetup for many years. And so we kind of, I mean, for lack of a better term, I guess cornered the market in Boston on Ember, got in before other people. Uh, that wasn't the intent, but that's kind of what happened. But we are very much wanting to, uh, you know, share our experiences. And I think that is, for developers, that, that really works pretty well and kind of created our, a name for ourselves. No one really knows about Dockyard outside of Ember, but I think people inside of the Ember world uh, have an idea of who we are because of that. That's great. Um, I saw in one of your blog posts that you guys were doing weekly billing, and you were billing out at least, when you wrote that blog post, $4,000 uh, a week, First of all, are you still doing weekly billing? I, yes. I, I wouldn't be surprised based on what you've been saying that you've probably upped that by a bit. But I'm curious yeah, to know. We're at seven. We're at seven thousand dollars per week per head right now. Um, wow. We will probably try to bump that up to seventy five hundred dollars after the new year. And the weekly billing has been pretty good for us. After about, I'd say, the first two months of Dockyard, I came in one day and said, "We're no longer doing hourly billing." I, I was getting so sick of, you know being on everyone's ass to actually get their hours in. I mean, it's the same complaint that everyone always has about hourly billing. It's, you know, you know there are people that are very good about it, and the ones that aren't just end up being more of a headache. And it's almost like they're 
completely wasting your time if not recording what they're doing. And at the same time, that may not be what their personality is. They may not be very effective at being able to like micromanage their time. And you know, I spent 30 minutes on this. I spent an hour on that. And you're asking them to kind of, I think for software developers, once you get in that flow, if you're taking yourself out of that flow, it actually ends up costing more time for implementation. So we moved over to weekly billing. Uh, the way we do it is we say that it's about 32 hours per week. Generally, that's Monday through Thursday. This gives us the ability to have open source day, or we call it dockyard day on Friday. That means you're writing blog posts, you're writing open source software, contributing something back in some way, or doing something for the company. It's not a day off. But if there's a Monday holiday, like Martin Luther King Day or something like that, then our work day will be Tuesday through Friday. So we always try to get those four days in as much as we can. If worst comes the worst and we can't, we'll just prorate it. So we'll just take the weekly rate, divide it by the number of days, and multiply that by the number of days that was actually worked, get what we ended up billing for. And our clients have been pretty good about that. I actually found that the bigger clients that we go after are bigger fans of the weekly billing than they are of the, the hourly billing. I think that you can probably really rack up more time on hourly billing than weekly billing. And in weekly billing can sometimes almost feel like fixed bid per week. But the sample size is so small that you don't really run into the problems you would if it was like a you know multi-month fixed bid contract. And we're very protective of our developers as well. we pretty hard of that 32-hour rule. My developers do put in time after hours sometimes, but I don't like it. Uh, I try to avoid it as much as possible. The thing I found personally about hourly billing is that you become very much aware when you're not working, you're not making money. And that I found to me when I was freelancing by myself became very problematic. I was putting in 60 hours a week just because I could bill every single hour. And it's not a very healthy way to live. And I think, Curtis, I know you do weekly billing, and you have people pay you in advance. So, Brian, do you also do it that way, where people pay you in advance, or do you just bill them afterwards for however many people, however many weeks? Typically, we'll do a 25% deposit. Okay, so so if it was like a, a Greenfield project that came to us, we will get a general assessment on what discovery will take. If it's like two or three weeks, we'll say, okay, it's going to cost you about $21,000 to do discovery. Uh, we've had discovery sometimes go up to $100,000 for, like, we have a $1.5 million contract that we're working on. And that, that was easily six figure plus discovery. So we'll get a sense of that. And then we require that to be paid up front. And then from there, we will get a estimate on the, the design, visual design and engineering phase. Our visual design estimate will be very accurate coming out of discovery. Our engineering estimate will be very ballparkish. But from, from that amount, will require a 25% deposit up front before we begin work. And then typically we do net 15. But you are sending an invoice our, every week. Weekly invoice You're sending an invoice every week um, for a week? Yep, every single week. So every single Friday we do invoicing. Um, we try to cre- keep it as granular as possible. I found we were doing monthly invoicing early on, and even though it ends up being the same amount, sometimes clients don't like seeing a huge number on a single invoice. So... We try to try to keep it as small as possible. You know, the numbers end up being the same, but I guess I it's a matter of perception. The longer you leave an invoice, too, right? Like if it's not out, as soon as they, if you're doing flat rate, as soon as the project's done, like the day it's done, then the longer I, you leave it, the less, the longer it takes to get paid as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. One other question. This goes way back to the, the beginning of what you're talking about in your in your personal life that you said you know you went to uh, college 
and you took the computer science courses, then you didn't graduate. Has this affected your view of when you hire people, what you look at in terms of their educational background? Do you care if they graduate from college? Do you care if they even major in computer science? I don't. I actually think that for web development, if you have a PhD and you're doing web development, you're probably in the wrong business. Ruben just I mean, finished there's, his. There's a... Oh. Uh, <laughs> just finished it. <laughs> 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 my form today. Do you have a PhD? <laughs> I, I literally did, li- oh, literally, literally sorry, today man. my advisor sent me an email saying that he uh, he had submitted the form, but it's okay, well, it's okay. You don't have Please to find a new job now. So, <laughs> but, but well, it's been fun, guys. It's almost like this, like for a lot of what we're doing though, it's just architectural implementation, right? There's very little algorithmic work. There's very little stuff that I would consider that would justify a PhD unless you're doing like some massive scalability concern. Uh, things, but for especially for the project that we work on, our greenfield, and so it, it's sometimes going through the motions. I, I almost look at someone that has a very deep computer science background as being overqualified for, for that type of job. Not to say I wouldn't accept somebody like that, just that I also don't want people that are going to get easily bored. I want people that find this type of work engaging and challenging. But as far as who our ideal candidates are for working here. If I'm talking about, like, there's three levels, junior, middle, senior. So junior engineers, we always look for people. They don't have to have a specialty in what we're doing. I want to find people that can learn fast. If you're hiring a junior engineer, the mentorship can be very draining on you, and it can be very, like, time-consuming. It can actually hurt, you know, a lot of your estimations, a lot of your contracts. And so if you're wasting time on a junior hire that is not – just is not getting it, is not moving along fast enough, then you know you should move on and find somebody else. The way that I have vetted that, um, I typically will look at their education background to see if they're if they come from a good school. I think that is a good indicator that they are quick at learning things. If they're, they're quick, uh, they're quick learners. But that does not that's not a good indicator that they're going to become a very successful like senior engineer. For example. One of our most senior engineers on the EmberJS core team, he didn't even go to college, uh, so he uh, he's you know one of our best people. So it's it. I think if you're looking at like mid level to to senior, you need to assess beyond that. You know that this is probably not the. There's been a lot of backlash against the GitHub resume type stuff lately, but I will look towards open source work just because it is a inexpensive qualifier for us. Like hiring and vetting candidates can be very time consuming. And sometimes you just don't have the time to really you know, dive deep in, into them. Like we'll, we'll look at whether or not they work for us culturally, if they're a good cultural fit, if they're a good personality. Bringing somebody on in the team that's toxic to the environment, especially for a small company, is a death knell. You don't want that. And I mean, we have goals as a company too. We're, we're attempting to become as diverse as possible. Like uh, having, I would like to be, I guess, gender neutral sometime in the future. We have, um, we're about two thirds male right now, one third female, and we're trying to hit 50 50 uh, between design and engineering. I think we'll get there probably in another year or so, but it's, uh, it is a challenge just because, I mean, it's no secret that there are not, I mean, the, the, the pool you can draw from a candidates for female candidates is much, much smaller than you can draw from for for male engineering candidates right now. So if you're going to go down that road, you have to be really dedicated towards it and really believe in what you're doing, 
or else you can get kind of frustrated that there just you know isn't enough opportunities or enough you know enough candidates out there. We are primarily in-house. I I recently went on a trip to the West Coast, San Francisco, San Diego, in Austin. Austin's not West Coast, but that was my last stop. And we're looking for another senior engineer, uh, Ember specifically. A lot of people wanted to work with Dockyard. Not a lot of people wanted to move to Boston. And I've stayed away from remote engineers, not because I don't, you know, I'm trying to be controlling and want everyone here, but only because we just are terrible at managing remote engineers. I think for, if we were a product company and we had one long-term project to work on, having remote engineers would be easier to manage. But when we're working on a project that lasts three to four months, the ramp-ups are so small that any time wasted is a real killer. So if we're waiting on, like we, if we have someone that's a 12-hour difference, regardless of how great of an engineer they are, sometimes the time difference is enough to really wipe out that advantage of having a senior engineer. If you're waiting on that person or if they're waiting on you, it can be really, really difficult. There are probably people much smarter than me that are much better at managing remote developers, but it's not a skill that I have developed to date. It's probably one that we're going to have to focus on, but we just haven't really gone down that road yet. Would you consider having a, like another office, a satellite office? We've been talking about that uh, as well. Uh, I think that is something in our future. We, we tried it kind of an experiment down in Washington, D.C. We had two people down there. One was a PM. The other one was an engineer. But we never really had they, – they weren't even working in the same place. They, didn't have, they were working out of their houses. I, I think that when we do it, it's most likely going to be someone that we've had here in our Boston office that we, you know, transplant to another place and kind of start up another dockyard elsewhere. Uh, a lot of other consultancies have done that, and it's a it seems like a good process. Brian, any, anything we uh, we didn't cover that you think would be useful for people to hear or to know? Uh, I mean, I, I think that going back to the money side of things, the most important lesson I learned recently, uh, and this is a little bit kind of a little dramatic side to it as well, was we had a we had a business developer in house about a year, and um, like really good guy, but had a different vision for the company than I did, and had a different way of selling the company than I did. Well, like, uh, my plan was we were going to specialize in Ember, and we were going to get some really big contract because of it. And so we specialized in Ember, and we had a potential for a really big contract, and that that the business developer was not able to secure the payday that we were going to be that I had in mind, or at least the rate that I knew that we were worth. And we kind of came to a blows because of it. I actually was willing to fold up my company. I told my wife that evening, I go, look, I'm not willing to continue scraping by. Like, I'm going to, you know, fold up Dockyard. We're done. I'm going to have to go out and get a new job. I stayed up really, really late that night. I was, you know, pretty depressed, really sucked. And then I just came up with a plan. I came in the next morning. Within 10 minutes, I fired the business developer I contacted the uh, uh, the client and I uh, sold them on the rate that I knew that we should be getting. The lesson I learned out of that was in order to sell your business, you have to believe in what you're doing. You have to believe that you're worth the amount that you're asking for. You can't go into it saying like, you know, can we get this amount or, you know, you say this is the amount we're getting uh, or this is, you know, this is the rate and like really hold yourself to it. If you If you find yourself negotiating your rate, you've already lost. Never, ever negotiate rate. There are other things you can be negotiating against. You can negotiate 
like IP handoff, you can negotiate time, you can negotiate, you know, what the you know, outlines deliverables will be, but never, ever, ever negotiate your rate. There will be times, though, like when the market turns and you're going to have to come down, but allow, you know, you should be going through losing a few clients before you decide to do that. I find that a lot of uh, software developers are excellent at engineering and sometimes terrible at sales. And I was terrible at sales. I think I'm okay at it now, but it's a it's a difficult thing to learn. When it comes to negotiation and really kind of leverage and getting the rate that you want, there's an excellent book out there. I know this is getting into like the where you guys want to tie up and have suggestions or you know picks. Um, but I just want to bring special note to this. You guys may have talked about this book previously. I haven't heard all your all your podcasts, but there's a book out there oh, called The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. Have you guys heard of that book before? No. Okay. So it's just no, no. It's winwithoutpitching.com. It's like you can read it online for free. You can buy a hardcover for 25 bucks. It's about 125 pages. It's an excellent book. It was suggested to me by Pete Ford, who used to run Unspace up in Canada. And he actually reached out to me off of some of the blog posts I've been writing, and we uh, we chatted about it. And that was a book that he read that helped him build his company. And it is a bunch of uh, just like stories or at least you know direction on how to create leverage for yourself. Because that's what all it comes down to in, in contract negotiation is establishing leverage and being able to use that leverage to get the rate that you want or at least get the favorable outcome in a negotiation that you want. I don't have all the book memorized, but I was happy when I read it to, to see that we were doing some of the stuff discussed in the book. And then the other things, we've started bringing those into our process. So uh, it's a pretty simple read. I read it on an airplane, three-hour flight. I highly suggest people check this book out. Some people may read it and just go, oh, this is you know sales or business BS. But uh, for us, awesome. it really resonated, list, and it's really helped, helped uh, with our sales pitch. It's great. I don't really read many books. It's like really small. Yeah. And I, I'm just looking at the table of contents. I'm saying, huh, that seems really good. So some of it seems no, so obvious too. Like, it, like there's there's some stuff in there. You're like, oh yeah, that's you know, I knew that. I knew that. Or that seems obvious. But it's like the the culmination of all in one spot that really that really gives it its strength. Very good. We'll tell you what. Why don't we then with with that move move into the title section and move into the picks? Tell you what, Brian, you've already given us one good one, even without intending, perhaps. You have any other uh, good suggestions, good picks for us? I mean, future pick, future pick. I'm actually running the Ember JS way for Addison Wesley. It will be available after I finish it, but there's no, <laughs> I don't know when that's going to happen. Can sign up to be notified about that, or? Well, that would be really great. I think you can do it on Amazon. You can pre-order, but I don't know if there's like Amazon has a way for you to watch a book, probably. No, and I can tell you from experience. I mean, granted, things have changed since I wrote my book back in 2000, but um. They are all over the map in terms of because they get the dates from the publisher. Yeah, and the publisher, of course, is giving a gross estimate based on what they're hoping you will actually do. And so you can pre-order books, and it might be completely off the mark. <laughs> yeah, the, the publication date on Amazon is sometimes September, and that is not going to happen. I can tell you right now. But we, <laughs> we we wrote about fifty percent of the book. And then there has been so much movement in the in the Ember world that we decided to pull back and wait for some things to solidify before going. I mean, you can, whenever you write a technical article, a blog post, I mean, right when you write a blog post, within a week it's out of date. When you write a book, like you're even taking a bigger risk, like before you go to print, it's out of date. But things are moving so much faster in the Ember world that not only would it have been out of date, it would have been completely irrelevant. So if we're going to put out a book, I want it at least to have some relevancy for whatever period of time it takes to get to the next version. 
Sure. Uh, for my blog posts, I often will always find photos. Um, usually Curtis, photos you have any picks for us this week? Like them. And I use uh, Flickr, the open source, or the uh, Creative Commons photos. There's a little Chrome plugin called Download Flickr Photos. So you can simply visit the photo, click on the Flickr button in the top of Chrome, and download the photo instantly, full size. It is excellent. makes lots of things faster for me. Excellent. So I've got two picks for this week as well. Uh, the first is a book that I've been reading through called, is a great title, How Not to Be Wrong, uh, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. So it's by this uh, mathematician named uh, Jordan Ellenberg. He's written a bunch of articles for Slate over the years, and now he, I think it's a collection of them plus a bunch of additional chapters, but he basically tries to explain how mathematics is not equations and craziness and things that are unrelated to life, but it's a way of thinking about the world and a way of reasoning logically so that, as he says uh, in, a, in the title, uh, you, can, you can not be wrong, or at least you can understand where you are and are not wrong. So I've been having a lot of fun. It's written really, really well. A lot of fun reading through. I'm probably about halfway through it at this point. And the other thing is, because today I actually got sign-off on my dissertation, woohoo! finally it's official, I have a PhD. So if anyone out there has ever been curious to know what a dissertation looks like and is having trouble falling asleep, uh, you're welcome to email me, and I'll be happy to send you a copy of the dissertation. <laughs> I actually think there's some interesting stuff in there. Whether it was 11 years' worth of interesting stuff remains to be seen. But uh, I'd be happy to share that with listeners to the podcast and anyone else you know who cares. Anyway, I guess that wraps it up for this week. Don't forget that next week we're going to be talking to Daniel Pink about his book, To Sell is Human, which is sitting there on my pile of books next to my chair. See ya. And so read it, enjoy it, join us for the book club. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at FreelancerShow.com slash forum. 